If you'll turn in your Bibles to Esther, the first chapter. We've been preaching for a few weeks now on a specific subject, which is a young woman finding a spouse. And I hope that you've noticed that we focus more on the character of the young woman than we have on the character of the young man that she may be looking for. Because I believe that the most important element of finding a spouse, whether you're a young man looking for a spouse or a young woman looking for a spouse, I believe the most important element is training yourself and learning to be that person that you're looking for. Now, I don't mean that you're looking for somebody who's your twin to marry. You don't want to do that. I've said before, if I'd married someone that was just like me, that would be very narcissistic and, uh, and very boring because I really get tired of myself. But understand in the general characteristics of, and, and virtue of a person is what we should be working on whenever someone is looking for a spouse. And, you know, we've looked at a, a couple of different examples. The first was the barley harvest romance uh, that Ruth uh, found herself in. And then we looked last week at a valentine in the vineyard where we found the Shulamite who was taken as the treasured wife of King Solomon. And I would be remiss if I did not point out in both of those scenarios that neither one of those young women had it as their goal, I'm going to find me a husband. (laughs) That was not their goal. If you think about Ruth, she was simply maintaining a depressed and and helping to support a depressed mother-in-law who was in a bad, bad frame of mind, very, a very dark place, even blaming God for her own circumstances that she had helped create. We, we, We tend to do that, don't we? And so Ruth was not seeking a spouse in the sense of that was her goal. And that was recognized by her future husband, Boaz, when he said, you're blessed because you're not out there putting yourself on the market start seeking a rich man or a poor man or, or going, chasing after boys. You're just doing what's godly and what's right. And guess what? The Lord provided. And the same could be said for the Shulamite, who was definitely cast aside in a sense because her siblings and her family made her go do the most menial uh, of labor, the most basic, low-level kind of, of labor, which was to go and gather the grapes. So you find Ruth gleaning grain, doing what she was felt burdened to do, serving God, and she finds a spouse. And then you have the young Shulamite who felt like somebody that had just been cast aside and she was gathering grapes and she winds up being a queen in Israel. And so today, this situation we look at today in Esther is, is I believe it's much different than what we found with Ruth and with the Shulamite. You remember Ruth was a very practical approach. Just put yourself in the right place, doing the right thing, hitting the checklist for what honors got a very practical approach. Be in, be in the right place, doing the right thing, and your hap may be to fall upon the field of Boaz. You see? You don't go looking down at the bar for a spouse. You, you go and you do the right thing, and that's a very practical approach. And then we saw the Shulamite was a very emotional approach. She was doing something that she really wasn't crazy about doing, but she was honoring her family by doing that. And so she's down there from an emotional standpoint, and she finds, she finds her soulmate. <laughs> you see? 
Now, this situation we've got before us today is very different. I believe that it is more political than it is emotional or practical because we find a young woman in Esther who is thrust into a situation that was not the most ideal situation. She goes from being a POW, a prisoner of war, to an orphan queen. She goes from, this is kind of funny, I thought, she replaces a drama queen. That was Vashti. She becomes a non-drama queen. (laughs) So this morning, I know y'all are just chomping at the bit to know what my title is. The title of this one comes straight from modern television. I really debated over whether or not to call it the first season of The Bachelor. (laughs) But but I really fell on this more. I think it's, you know, you've heard of the show America's Got Talent. This is Babylon's Got Talent. That's my choice today. You know, take it or leave it. Babylon's Got Talent. Because what you've got here basically is a talent show. It's like a beauty pageant. And you have thousands of contestants in this beauty pageant. And I think of... Uh, how in America's Got Talent, which I just watch little clips of that with the children from time to time just to see who's going to get the golden buzzer, if you all know what that is. You know, you get the golden buzzer from one of the judges and you move on to the next round, hands down, even if everybody votes against you. <laughs> well, that's kind of what happens to Esther in this situation. She gets the golden buzzer. We'll get to that. But Babylon's Got Talent. And the reason I'm moving away from sort of the romantic title is because I don't really believe this is a, a romantic story. It's more of a political story, and this is why, this, you say, well, why are we using this one, Brother Tim? Because this is why. Because I want you to see young sisters, brothers and sisters of all ages, that you have a higher purpose for your life than just simply to get married. There is a higher purpose. Now, getting married is an awesome, incredible, God-ordained thing, but you have a higher purpose for your life, and Esther found that. There was a higher purpose going on in what happens to Esther. And we need to step back and look beyond ourselves and look beyond what's right in front of us. And, and a lot of times you can't see that until it's right upon you or it's already passed. You ever look back and say, boy, the Lord really got me through that. <laughs> well, here you'll find Esther, who is in a really strange situation. It could, it could have developed into a, an emotional, romantic relationship. And it, it could have developed into something very practical that was very useful. But more than that, we're going to see that God intervenes for a higher purpose in the marriage of Esther and what she winds up doing. And it all had to do with, don't miss this, her character. It had to do with what kind of person she was and what kind of person she'd been trained to be and how she had disciplined herself as she went along. So Babylon's got talent. We go from a practical in Ruth to the emotional with the Shulamite, and now we kind of come to a mess is what we've got. This is probably more political than anything. And we want to think about how important it is to maintain composure whenever things are not the best that they could possibly be. (laughs) You know, in the practical approach with Ruth, we see how Ruth just stayed the course. You know, she just stayed the course of serving God. In the emotional situation with the Shulamite, we see how she just did what she did, honoring her, her, um, her parents, honoring her family, and she did not settle. She found her soulmate. See, there's instructive lessons on both of those. But here, we come to a young woman who's thrust into a bad situation. She maintains composure. She, t- she maintains grace under fire. She makes the best of a bad situation. So let's figure out what that situation is. Esther 1, it says, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this is Ahasuerus which reigned from India even into Ethiopia over 107 and 20 provinces. 
if you want to put that in perspective, you know, we've, we've got, you know, the, the 50 states of the United States of America. This guy had a, 127 states or countries, not just states, spread out all over from India up north, north uh, east, and all the way down to the south of Ethiopia, which is the top part of Africa. This guy had a vast empire. By the way, Ahasuerus historically is believed to be Xerxes I. That's who he's believed to be, if, if, that wants to, if you want to put it in a historical perspective. And it says, in those days, when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne, which was in Shushan the palace, this is Babylon, in the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all the princes and servants and uh, the power of Persia and Media and the, no, uh, the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him, which he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even a hundred and fourscore days. So a six-month party. It's what he's putting on to his own glory and to the glory of the power that he has over all these provinces. And when these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan the palace. After the six-month party, this is what you would call the after party. <laughs> Both to great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. You know, this was that, uh, this was that <laughs> very special tux and tie affair even beyond just the six months of feasting and partying that they'd done. And notice the language here. I don't want to miss this, how ornate this party was. Where there were white, green, and blue hangings, fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings and pillars of marble. The beds were of gold and silver upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black and marble. And they gave them drink and vessels of gold. They were drinking out of cups of made of gold. This is some kind of party now. The vessels being diverse one from another and royal wine in abundance according to the state of the king. And the drinking was according to the law. You know, they could get as drunk as they wanted to because the king made it legal. <laughs> they could get just as drunk as they want to because this king passed the law and said, this legal, get as drunk as you want to. None did compel you to do that though. For so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. Also, now watch this in verse 9, Vashti the queen made a feast for the women in the royal house, which belonged to King Ahasuerus, not to be outdone by the great six-month-plus party that uh, Ahasuerus has been having. Vashti has a party for the women. And on the seventh day, Vashti's party is going over there with the women, and the men are over here partying with the men. And on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded these certain men, the chamberlains that served in his presence, verse 11, to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal, to show the people and the princess her beauty, for she was fair to look upon. This was a beautiful woman. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. Now, you've ever heard the saying, two wrongs don't make a right? <laughs> well, this is the classic. Two or three or four or five wrongs on top of each other just don't make a right. So regardless of whether it was right or wrong for Vashti to come in or not come in, we're not going to deal with that. But this is just what happened. This is how it fell out. She refused to come in. It could be that she refused to come in because it was they, they would, the king was requiring her to do something very inappropriate. Who knows? We don't know. But for whatever reason, she stood her ground and she said, I'm not going in. Well, this, and remember these guys, most of them are probably having six-month hangovers at this point. You know, they're, they're not thinking quite right at this point. And so the king is so angry because she won't come in that he looks to all of these men. And remember, all these men, these leaders are gathered from all these provinces. And the king is flexing his muscle, you might say. 
He's showing them what he's got. He's showing them how powerful he is. And, then he, and, and on top of all of that, he says, now come look at my beautiful queen. And she won't come in. So he's lost face here. You understand? And the men are thinking, well, maybe he's not as powerful as we think he is. This is all a political play that's going on here. And maybe these men that encouraged the king to do what he does didn't like Vashti. Maybe it's all a political play. Spiritual wickedness in high places. And so the king was so mad, his anger burned within him. He says to the wise men, you know, who've been drinking for six months and seven days, he says to the wise men, what should we do? Because Queen Vashti will not come in. Verse 15, what shall we do unto the Queen Vashti according to law? Because she had not performed the commandment of the king, her Ahasuerus. And so this fellow Mimikan, he begins to devise a plan. And, and this, this is the classic, classic overreaction. Classic. The Mimikan says, well, because Vashti has not come in to the head man, the king of the nation, well, this means that all women, when they hear about this, are going to dishonor their husbands. Now, is that true? <laughs> I mean, you think about the good brothers and sisters throughout the kingdom, especially the Israelites who were raised under the teachings of the law. You know, does that mean that every woman across the board is going to dishonor her husband? It does not mean that. Look, Try to put it in perspective. This is very similar to overreactions that we see today. A man takes an assault rifle and kills people, which is horrible. It's terrible. And then they begin to say, well, let's ban all assault rifles. Aren't they missing the point? This is classic overreaction because one woman, the queen, has dishonored her husband. Within all women, we're going to pass a law. You know, we're going to, we're going to handle this to make a point. This is classic overreaction. You can find that in so many different areas, okay? So they, he passes the law, and he says, she's out. She's removed. And they send out a letter throughout all the provinces, which probably took months to get out. It says the king's decree went out to remove her, and it says that all wives shall give to their husband's honor, both great and small. This is such, I tell you, the feminists would have a field day with this, would they not? <laughs> You know, the feminists would be cheering and going, yeah, Vashti, should, she shouldn't have gone in. And, oh, you know, hashtag me too. This is cruel, you know, that, that he kicked her out. This is horrible. Well, it's, it's horrible all the way around. It's not because a person is a feminist that they should be offended by this. You understand? You know, it was horrible for King Ahasuerus to order her to come in when they were in their drunken state. It's horrible for Vashti to have refused to go in because look at the chain of reactions that she set off. It's horrible for the king to remove her like he did. It's just sin. Y'all understand? Brokenness and sin. It's not about being a feminist or being a chauvinist or this, that, or the other. It's about sin. You see? And they overreact. It's a political play. By the way, most of what you see out in the world today, overreacting laws, laws that are overreacting, can we say it's political play? <laughs> That's what it is. See? To use a situation to someone's advantage from a political standpoint. We have all been victims of that, have we not? In one way or the other, especially of, of late. Now, as if, if they hadn't passed this law and done this to Vashti, as if all women in the kingdom would have dishonored their husbands, that's not what was going to happen. It's a political play to remove someone that they did not like. And so Vashti is removed, and you really you never hear from her again. Now, maybe she was prideful and stubborn and arrogant. Maybe she was all those things. But all of this is just a mess. And I belabor the point to tell you that this is a mess because I want you to know that our God in heaven who is sovereign can step into any mess and get His glory. You hear me? Young sisters, you might find yourself in a mess one day. You might say, well, I, I did everything. I was very practical in how I approached this very emotional in how I approach this. 
I found my soulmate. And yet you may find yourself in a mess. And this is where you maintain composure. This is where you take on the characteristics of Esther to maintain composure. So after some time went by, two or three years goes by and it dawns on this king, you know, I need another queen. (laughs) And so that's where the first season of The Bachelor (laughs) begins to take place. Xerxes, Ahasuerus, decides that he needs to have another king, so they come up with another bright idea of where they're going to send out a letter through all of the 127 provinces. That's from India all the way down to Ethiopia. Don't miss that. And at least 127 young virgins come, young women come. But it was more probably like thousands, okay? At least 127 because there's 127 provinces, and we know that Esther came from Shushan the palace, that particular area. So I'm thinking a reasonable estimate would be a thousand, at least a thousand young women. That's a big contest, is it not? And so all these contestants gather. And can you imagine, have y'all ever been to a cheerleader tryout or a majorette tryout or, you know, some sport tryout? And I'm not just knocking on the girls about that, but it can get kind of dramatic, can it not? Can you imagine the toxic environment that was going on in Shushan the palace? I feel sorry for these chamberlains, for these men who were in charge of these thousand, at at least a thousand, maybe two or three thousand women. They're having to deal, these men had to be very good counselors or they had to be very mean (laughs) and just say, get over it. You know, there is no telling what kind of fights and stuff took place amongst these, these young, and I'm not saying they were all that way, but it can get toxic, can it not? You know, you've heard the old saying that boys are dumb and girls are mean. Well, I'm sure this was perfected in, in, during the time in which these young women, who were probably from ages 15 to 25, are coming before the king. And the king's probably, I would say at the, at the earliest, he's late 30s, maybe close to 50. So all these contestants began to gather. And by the way, you didn't have a choice. You didn't say, well, I don't really want to go. No, you were picked. The men went through the the provinces and they said, there's one, there's one, take her, take her. You didn't have a choice. And in the province of Shushan, the palace there, Esther was taken. And we read about that, about Esther. And let's read in verse 5 of Esther 2. Now in Shushan, the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. By the way, you recognize that name, Shimei? If you don't, you need to go look it up and see where else it occurs. It'll shock you. This, and the point of that is, here's a man who descended from a horrible man who is a good man, <laughs> you see. A generational curse didn't lie on this Mordecai. So Mordecai was the son of Jair, Shimei, and he was of Kish, a Benjamite. He had, they had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity. He's a, he was a prisoner of war. During the days of Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, carried away. If you've listened to the recent sermons, you you may remember some of this. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter. For she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. So he adopted Esther. This, This young lady doesn't have the greatest background, does she? Her parents have died, she's been orphaned, and she's been adopted by either her uncle or her cousin. And so here she is already, got a few strikes against her. She's probably 17, 18, 19 years old, maybe 20. And it came to pass when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, and when many maidens were gathered together in Shushan the palace so the, uh, to the custody of Hegei, who was got to be a saint from the Lord, <laughs> that Esther was brought also into the king's house to the custody of Hegei, keeper of the women. Now, we, we have information given here about Esther that she was an orphan and she was adopted by Mordecai. So she doesn't have the best background. 
the most normal type background. She was a prisoner of war, and so was her adoptive father. And then on top of all this, everything's going great. They're surviving and, and doing well in the palace. Well, next thing you know, she's impressed. She is brought into this against her will to be a contestant in the first season of The Bachelor. And here's where the Babylon's Got Talent begins to uh, come forth. Notice she was brought against her will. And it says in verse 9 that the maiden, that's Esther, pleased Higai. And she obtained kindness of him. And he speedily gave her her things for purification, which things, which, with such things as belonged to her. And seven maidens, which were meet to be given her. Okay, so if you've ever seen any of those shows, I, don't, I haven't watched those shows, but we've YouTubed a few of those things where the three judges or the four judges will be sitting there, you know, and you know, somebody they don't even know, you know, comes walking out. They don't have a resume and they don't have a recommendation and saying, here I am, I come from so-and-so. It's nice to have recommendations. And I've written some letters of recommendation for, for many of you through the years. It's great to have a recommendation. But these folks are just coming in there cold, kind of like America's Got Talent or some of the other uh, strange shows that you see. And so here comes each one of these thousands of women. They come before the judges. Higai is the judge. If some of you watch America's Got Talent, well, maybe this guy's like you know Lionel Richie or, or Luke Bryan or one of those fellas that, that, uh, uh, that is on that show. And they sit there and they look. Now, what's your name? Where are you from? You know, what's your talent? <laughs> and, and for whatever reason, I don't know. I wish it told us. I wish it told us why. But it says that Esther pleased him. Now, we might find a little bit of a clue in the definition of what it means to please. It says, she pleased him. And it's, a, it's two Hebrew words. One that means in the sight of, and the other means cheerful countenance. Okay? So something about her countenance. Now, this is not magic, and it's not some kind of miracle or nothing like that. But of all the girls that were coming through, and you can imagine, he's seen hundreds Here's another one. Oh no, drama queen, drama queen, drama queen. <laughs> and here comes Esther. Something is different about her from her, the side of her. Not just that she's beautiful, but there's something different about her. I believe it's found in the fact that she had a cheerful countenance, a beautiful countenance. You know, we read about that in the scripture a few times. It says that Abigail, who eventually married David, he was, she was in a bad situation. Once she married to a horrible man named Nabal, who nobody could even speak to. But it says she was of a beautiful countenance. There's a woman who maintained composure in the midst of terrible circumstances. And that's what this lesson is. Maintaining composure in not your ideal circumstances. So Esther just comes before Higai. Higai gives her the golden buzzer. All the confetti comes down. They start shouting and screaming and crying, and their life's been fulfilled. You know how those shows go, you know. The penultimate point of your life, I got the golden buzzer. I don't think that's what Esther did, but she gets the golden buzzer nonetheless. And he puts her on the fast track. Okay, you say, what does that mean? This is not a six-week season. Y'all understand? This is a 12-month season in which these young women are basically brought in, in a sense, held captive. If they didn't want to stay, they had to stay. They couldn't check out. They couldn't go off the show. And for 12 months, first six months, they had certain things given to them for purification. And then another six months goes by, they have more different things given to them for purification because they were coming from India, they were coming from Ethiopia, and all points in between. And so 12 months. So this initial contact with the Chamberlain, with Higeia, who was the keeper of the women... Whatever happens, she's pleasing to him. And he puts her on a fast track. Listen, let me just, I don't want to be untouchable with this. 
But I want you to think about it, okay? About someone's countenance, all right? You know, if, if you've lived any length of time, you can tell the difference between somebody who's happy and somebody who's sad, right? I mean, you could see a sad look on someone's face. You could see a happy look on someone's face. In the same way, you can detect, I'm not saying every time, because anybody can be deceived, but in the same way, there are times when you can detect a beautiful countenance and you can detect maybe a dangerous countenance or, as I say sometimes, that person's due to watch. Are y'all with me? Am I living in a dream world? (laughs) I remember 25 years ago when I first laid eyes on my dear wife. I didn't know her name, didn't know who she was. And I'm not talking about some mysterious, untouchable kind of thing. But I remember when I looked in her eyes and I saw her face for the first time, and she'll probably say the same thing. Didn't know her name, didn't know who she was, but I think I know a little bit about what Higeia felt. I looked upon her and she had something about her look and her eyes. It occurred to me, this is a kind person. Now, that's me. Y'all may look at me and say, well, that's the meanest guy I've ever seen. (laughs) Okay. But when I first laid eyes on my dear wife, Sister Tracy, it just occurred to me, this person has kindness in their eyes. I believe I was right. (laughs) But that's the first thing that I noticed. That look, just a kind look. Sister Tracy doesn't want me to praise her, but I just want you to know that's my experience. And you can have that experience in many different ways. You can see someone and you can say, Ooh, you know, I'm not sure about that. That person seems angry. You know, if you come upon somebody and they're, they're throwing things and trying to, you know, or trying to run you off the road with road rage, you might want to stay away from them. They have a bad countenance. If they've got an angry countenance, if they've got a, a, a sad disposition, you know, you can tell things like that. God's given you a brain. God's given you the Word of God so that you can see about the countenance of someone. I'm going to tell you what, you better hope and pray that me, me as your pastor can have some sense of judgment in that area because I may come upon you one day. And if I'm not sensitive to your countenance, you may need me to speak with you. You may, may need a word of encouragement. You may need some, uh, something from me. You better hope that I have that kind of some sense of that judgment, right? And I'll tell you this, I pray about it. I think about it. Lord, help me to see where the need is. So Higeia sees there's something kind about this young woman. She's not a drama queen. And so he gives her the golden buzzer and she is on the fast track. He's got her on the fast track to see the king, which the fast track is a minimum of 12 months, by the way. (laughs) It says that she obtained kindness from him. That's in verse 9. The root word kindness is where we get the word mercy. And by the way, this is a lordly characteristic. Psalms 145 and 8 of the Lord. It says the Lord is gracious, full of compassion, slow to anger, and of great mercy. That's the kind of guy Higei was. This is Higei. He had mercy. And notice we go on and we read that Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her not to tell it. That's going to be significant later on. And Mordecai walked every day before the court of the women's house to know how Esther did and what would become of her. Now, when every maid's turn was come to go into the king Hasherus, after that she had been 12 months. You see, the fast track was 12 months. According to the manner of the women, for so were the days of her purification accomplished, six months with oil and myrrh, six months with sweet odors, and with other things for the purifying of the women. Then thus came every maiden unto the king. Whatsoever she desired was given her to go with her out of the house of the women unto the king's house. Now, let's just pause here for a moment. Understand, these women were from India all the way down to Ethiopia. Different cultures, different 
things going on in the different provinces, okay? So if you had a young woman from India who looks different than a young woman from Ethiopia or a young woman from Babylon and all points in between, they all look different. This young woman could choose what she wanted to take in, whatever she wanted to present to the king. You can't help but think of of a beauty pageant, you know, where they have the questioning section, and then they have, you know, this other, you know, the, the ballroom gown section, and then they have the talent section, you know, this is them strutting their stuff. This is them putting on, uh, dressing to the nines, putting on the dog, so to speak, and going in and just trying to wow the king and to say, I'm the one, I'm the one. <laughs> and can you imagine, you know, some young girl from India, you know, maybe she wanted to take in, you know, one of those Indian, uh, is it a Bengal tiger or something like that? You know, I want a Bengal tiger to go in with me on a leash, you know. <laughs> Or maybe some young lady from Ethiopia, you know, whatever, what, maybe they, you know, maybe they have these uh, birds of prey in Ethiopia. You know, so she wants to walk in, you know, with a bird of prey on her arm, you know, a falcon or something. <laughs> I mean, they could be as imaginative as they wanted to be. And you can imagine if you just kind of insert a shot of drama into that and, you know, and they're trying to upstage each other. Well, she's taking in, you know, a tiger. You know, I want to take in an elephant with me. <laughs> Or she's taking in, you know, a little cat. And Well, I'm going to take my dogs in with me. It makes me think of, there's an old Disney movie. Uh, I think it was um, uh, 101 Dalmatians, the old cartoon, you know, and it showed the, the people walking on the sidewalk. You know, there was a lady walking with her poodle, and she looked like her poodle and was dressed like her poodle, you know. And then there was a guy walking with his Labrador, you know, and he looked gruff and he looked like his Labrador. You know, I can just picture the, I'm silly, I know, but I can just picture these women choosing what they want to take in there. And here they come. They're, they're dressed to the nines and they've got their props. Y'all, there's, there's a show on that I haven't seen and, and I'm, I'm just, I'm sorry if you watch it, but, and I'm sorry for you if you watch it, but, but there's something, some show called The Masked Singers, you know, where the, I just don't get it. You know, they put on a, this just weird-looking mask, and they, I, I, number one, I don't see how they could sing behind the mask. But I can just picture these young women, you know, Ethiopia to, to India, going in there with masks on and with all this ornate props and stuff. You might think about music videos or something. You know, maybe some of them said, I want a band going there with me. I want, to, I want to put on the dog in front of the king. I mean, this is a one-shot deal. The reason this is a one-shot deal is because from a cultural standpoint, here's what's happening. It says that every one of these thousand-plus women went in and spent a night with the king. So basically what's happening is he's adding each one of these women to his harem as a wife. So every one of these women, they are becoming his wife. Wives. Okay, this, was a, this was a cultural thing in those days. It's not right, and I don't agree with it, but it was a cultural thing. So when they go in and spend the night with the king, they are married to him, and they become a part of his harem. But there's only one who's going to be the chief queen, the chief wife. Are y'all with me? Thousand plus women. This, this is power and cultural things going on that we, we just can't fully understand. I pray to the good Lord that we don't ever have to understand it. Because it's power. We, as red-blooded Americans, independent Americans, we don't understand this. This king could, could have someone's head cut off at the drop of a hat. He doesn't like the way you look. He doesn't like your countenance off with their head. Hang them execute him. And by the way, that's what happens eventually in this story. I don't think you'll find, I don't think in the world you can find better accounts of, uh, a fiction cannot get better than this true account here. You know, this is an amazing story where God intervenes in a terrible situation 
And so you see, Esther's got one shot. You know, of all these thousand women, there's only going to be one who is the chief wife. And the rest of them are just going to be relegated to servitude in the harem. The thousand plus wives of the king for the rest of their lives. Just go off into oblivion and be just one, just a name and a number. That's all they're going to be. So you can imagine the demands that many of these young women, most of these young women placed. They said, I can have anything I want. Well, this is what I want. <laughs> and so they'd go in there and, and the king in the king's chamber to impress the king. And it says in verse 13, Thus came every maiden unto the king. Whatsoever she desired was given her to go with her out of the house of the women unto the king's house. In the evening she went, this is verse 14, and on the morrow she returned into the second house of the women to the custody of Shazgaz, the king's chamberlain, which kept the concubines. She came in unto the king no more, except the king delighted in her and that she were called by name. You see, they go in, they marry the king, and they don't come back unless he says, bring that one back. And it really doesn't even sound like there were levels of competition. Like, you know, you, you, you got to the semifinals. <laughs> you got to the quarterfinals. <laughs> it sounds like you had one shot, and, it, and if you didn't please the king, then you're out. Now, when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for his daughter, was come to go in unto the king. Everything's riding on this. For, her, for us to be reading about her today... Everything is riding on what is about to happen. It says the women could, re- could require anything that they wanted to. And here is a clue, brothers and sisters, young women, older women, middle-aged women, young men, people of all ages. Here is a clue about godly characteristics and maintaining composure under fire. It says when her time came, she required nothing but what Haggai, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, appointed. Now, get that in your head. Here's the girl from Ethiopia. She says, I want my falcon. <laughs> you know, I want the leopard print uh, theme to go with me into the, before the king. You know, that's, that's the leopards and different things down there in Ethiopia. Are, are the, that's the province's mascot. You know, the girl from India or all points in between says, you know, I want to go in with this. Can you imagine if they were from further north, like up in Europe and areas that became known as Europe. You know, I want this to go in with me. I want to carry something that looks like my father's sword, the crest of our family. You know, all these different things. And they come to Esther, sweet little Esther. And they say, and Hegeia says, okay, honey, it's your turn. What do you want to take in? She said, whatever you say. Are y'all with me? She's content. And she listens to wise counsel. You know who Hegeia is? <laughs> He's not only the keeper of the women, but he's the one that is taking the women to the chamber of the king and watching the king's reaction when they walk in. And can you see the king sitting there and here comes the... We're picking on Ethiopia and India, aren't we? <laughs> Nothing against them. <laughs> but can you picture when the Bengalese tiger comes in with the girl from India and he goes, oh my goodness. <laughs> Another drama queen. That's what's going on. And Higaya is standing back there. This godly man is watching the king and he's seeing the king light up and go, oh, this, is, this is entertaining. I like the band that, that they've struck up from, uh, you know, from this particular province. I like the way this girl sings, or I like the way she looks, or I like this, or I like that. He's watching all of the reactions. And he knows the color that the king likes. He knows the king's what he doesn't like, what he does like, the favorite color, uh, the favorite uh, number, whatever it is. <laughs> Higaya knows it. And so this very humble and meek and wise young woman, she says... Whatever you say, whatever you think is best for me, I'll take it in. And I don't know exactly what she did or did not take in, but, but I'd rather, I, I, this is just me, this is conjecture, okay? But I can just picture this young Jewish woman wrapped in the colors of her family crest, the Benjamite crest, 
And just walking in there, just her. No pomp and circumstance. No great uh, production. He gay eye just says, you remember how you first spoke to me and you remember how you first came to me and I put you on that fast track. I gave you the golden buzzer. Just, just go in there and be yourself. I believe that's what he did. And so the king, he knows what the king's like. Maybe he put the right kind of color on her. Maybe he gave her a couple clues and said, now the king likes this, he likes that. Make sure you mention this. And so she just humbly goes in there and the king, you could, you could look at it this way. He, he falls madly in love with her. That's possible. But whatever it is that she did or the qualities that she possessed, it was the opposite of Queen Vashti. It's not prideful. It's not stubborn. It's not stamp your foot and this is the way it's going to be. It's not heady. It's not high-minded. She's just going in there and being herself. But listen, this is not to say, well, yes, I'll just be myself and whether he likes me or not, you know, so be it. That's, it's, that's not what she's doing here. The, the qualities of herself have been honed and trained to please God. Are y'all with me? So her self qualities are something that honors God because she's worked on it and she's been taught and she's been trained. She's just being herself. You know, I, I, when I think of the productions that went on, maybe y'all have seen the movie, I believe it's the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, the real Ten Commandments, you know, the KJV version of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, so y'all are not in a very funny mood this morning. But anyway, so... I, there's a scene in the Ten Commandments, you know, where the folks are coming in and presenting things to Yul Brenner, the, the king in there. You know, they're, they're putting on production in front of him. And then, you know, Moses and Aaron come before him. I think that's the place where it occurs. But that's what I picture. You know, this great production's going on and all this noise taking place and all these drums being beaten and all this music and all this stuff. And then here comes Esther. She just comes walking in. I mean, the total package. <laughs> she's just who she is. She's non-dramatic. She's easy to get along with. She's content. She's not demanding. She required nothing. She was instructable. And, and in a sense, if you're instructable, I'm talking to everybody, not just the young ladies, but if you're instructable in a sense, it makes you indestructible. If you can be instructed in a sense, it makes you indestructible because nothing is going to swerve you from what you know is right. You see? And the results found in verse 16, it says, Esther was taken unto King Herasherus into his house royal in the tenth month, which is the month to Beth, in the seventh year of his reign. So the thing with Vashti happened in the third year. Four years later, there's a new queen in town, and her name is Esther. And the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head, made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast unto all his princes and his servants, even Esther's feasts, and he made a release to the provinces and gave gifts and so forth and so on, and they all lived happily ever after. Is that true? Not at all. Listen, I believe in happily ever after all my life, but it comes with a price. And the price for living happily ever after is maintaining composure, maintaining grace under fire. And so, very quickly, things go south for the Jewish people. You can read about how Mordecai got crossed up with the wicked Haman, who was a descendant of a man who should have been wiped out three or four hundred years before. Haman should not even be alive. If God's people had done what God told them to do four or five hundred years before, there would be no Haman. But Haman is alive and Haman hates Mordecai and Haman pays a large sum of money, probably definitely millions of dollars to exterminate the race of the Jews. You know, this is like a pre-Hitler kind of guy. The only difference here is that before Haman can murder seven million Jews like Hitler did, 
and he gets stopped in his tracks. So you have Haman hating Mordecai, and nobody knows that Esther is a Jew. And so what happens is when the decree goes out and the king buys into it, you know, these guys are, these kings are real dramatic. You say, well, they, they lived happily ever after. Yeah, until the, until the king said, I'm going to pass a law to murder your entire, your entire race. <laughs> that would cause a little hiccup in the marriage, wouldn't it? <laughs> and so Mordecai goes to Esther in that famous uh, verse, the famous verse there that everybody knows about in Esther, the fourth chapter, verse 14, when Mordecai comes to Esther and makes her aware of what's going on, that this is bad, he says in the second half of that verse, verse 14, who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? You see, Mordecai wasn't presumptuous and say, you're the one, you, you've got it. He says, who knows? He said, I believe in the providence of God and I believe you're in the position that you're in so that you can help your people right now. Can we say this is a higher purpose than her just marrying the king? What are the chances? What are the, what are the chances? What are the statistics against uh, this particular woman who was a Jew becoming the head queen among all of those thousands of women who are now in the harem and are just not even a name, but just a number somewhere, and you've got Esther sitting on the right hand of the king? What are the chances of that? I'm telling you, there is no chance for that. That is the providence and the blessing of Almighty God. And she had a higher purpose for her life than just to be married to some king. Well, you read further here about that higher purpose. It says she prays for three days. And understand again, we don't have a concept about these kings. If the king was sitting on his throne, just imagine there's a throne right here and there's a king sitting on that throne and he's got this golden scepter and he's sitting there with this golden scepter and there's 20 people waiting to come in and see him. In order for you to come before the king, he's got to hold that golden scepter out. That's like enter. (laughs) And if he doesn't hold the scepter out, then you don't enter. There's armed guards all the way up and down the king's hall. You're not coming in. And he looks on you and he says, that, that person looks kind of funny. I don't want them in here. So he just holds his, his, holds his scepter and they go on. So number one, the king has got to hold his scepter out unto you. And according to this right here, just coming before the king was risking your life. Because if he didn't hold the scepter out to you, they carried you out and they hung you. That's power we don't understand, right? I hope it's power we never have to see in in our lives. But that is absolute power. It wasn't just, well, go on about your way and go back to your house. If he didn't hold the scepter out to you, you would probably be put to death. And so Esther comes to him. That's his wife now. And she says, I'm afraid. It's not time for us to be together. It's not time for me to sit on the right hand of the king. And I'm afraid. And so Esther takes a big risk after three days of prayer to go into her husband. So you see, well, it was a little more than romance going on here, right? <laughs> you know, it was some political things going on here. By the way, it indicates that Esther hasn't, maybe hadn't seen him for 30 days. How would you sisters that are married like that? Hadn't seen my husband in 30 days. <laughs> that would kill a little bit of romance, wouldn't it? That would kill a little bit of feeling towards one another. Uh, I, I can't go in and see my husband. He's the king. For, for 30 days. But she takes a risk and she goes in to see him. And it says when he looks upon her, in chapter 5, it says, It came to pass on the third day that Esther put on the royal apparel, stood in the inner court of the king's house, over against the king's house, and the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house. And it was so when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court that she obtained favor in his sight, and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. <laughs> That's something, isn't it? We don't understand that. Oh, I pray to the good Lord that none of you sisters ever understand that or brothers ever understand that kind of cruel rule of a king in your marriage. 
cruel. That's how Ahasuerus was in some way. He could have said, put her to death. This woman that he loved. <laughs> but Esther maintained, comp- maintains composure. And you remember what's going on here? She's going to ask the king for the life of her people. Millions of people throughout all the provinces. But she maintains grace under fire. If that had been me and my jumpiness and my quirkiness and my get it done mentality, I'd have gone and just laid down before the king and said, Oh, spare the people, spare our people. I, you know, I would have laid it all out before him right then because I don't have a lot of patience. But not Esther. She's got grace under fire. She doesn't ask the king. She just says, I want you to come to my banquet. The king comes to her banquet. Then she says, I want you to come to another banquet tomorrow. It's very significant, very significant that she waited Brothers and sisters, it's very significant that we pray for patience. And if you're looking for a spouse, whatever your situation may be, very significant that we be patient. She could have told him everything at that point, and the king would have probably had PTSD over Vashti and think, oh no, she's trying to corner me again. But she waited. And guess what? On that night, the night she waited, the king can't sleep. He can't sleep. And he asked his scribes, he said, come read me a story. Well, you know, you'd think they'd pick some fairy tale or something that would be entertaining and whatever. No, they took something to him that would put him back to sleep, which was the chronicles of the kingdom. <laughs> On such and such day, the king passed a law to do this. On such and such day, the king blah, 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 blah. Well, they pick up the chronicles, which is the most boring book in the entire kingdom. And they begin to read from a few years before. And it tells of the time when Mordecai, Esther's adopted father, saved the king's life saved his life by exposing a plot to kill the king. I mean, can we get any more providential than that? I mean, that is the most providential thing you could imagine. And so now the king's got Mordecai on his mind. He's got Mordecai. He says, what did we do for Mordecai when he saved my life? I said, nothing, king. You never did anything. (laughs) Shame on the king. So the king says, oh, who's out there in the court? Right now, who's standing out there? And they said, Haman. Haman's the one that wants to kill Mordecai. Haman's out there. Tell Haman to come in here. What would the king do to the man that he delights in? And Haman's so prideful and evil, he thinks, well, who else could he be talking about but me? (laughs) He says, let him go on a parade. Let him have the king's royal apparel. Let him have the king's horse. That's what should be done to the man who the king delights in. And the king says, you're the man, Haman. Go get Mordecai and do that for him. And don't you know Haman was thinking, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, I've built these gallows to hang Mordecai on tomorrow. And now I'm leading Mordecai around the city, crying out, thus shall it be done to the man the king delights in. Haman's time is just about up. So the next day, the king has the second banquet with Esther. Esther lays the case out before the king, and the king spares the entire race of the Jewish people and has Haman put to death on the very gallows that he built. Listen to me, young ladies, people of all ages. This doesn't apply just to the sisters. But you have a higher purpose in your life than just getting married. That higher purpose is to stand before the King of kings and Lord of lords. You have a higher purpose. If you buy into that higher purpose, and I'm not just speaking to the young sisters, but if you buy into that higher purpose, whoever you may be, then when things happen to you in life, when things don't go the way that you plan, whenever things aren't like you want them to be, you'll still maintain composure following after that higher purpose. Y'all with me? Now I hope and pray that you find Prince Charming. I hope it's not King Xerxes. (laughs) If you don't want to marry a man that only will hold the scepter out to you, or if he doesn't hold the scepter out to you, he's going to kill you. You don't want to marry somebody like that. You want to find that Boaz. You want to find that Solomon when Solomon was young. (laughs) But to save your little kingdom, you've got to maintain composure. You've got to maintain who you are. 
who God has called you to be. You have a higher purpose. I don't think by any stretch of the imagination that when Esther married the king and she was number one, that she thought, I'm going to save the kingdom one day. I don't think that at all. But when the time came and things went south, she maintained her composure and she delivered an entire nation. You and I, if we maintain our composure, grace under fire, we can deliver our little kingdoms. (laughs) You see? And who knows? God might use you to deliver an entire nation one day. But it's not going to be because you're losing it whenever things don't go your way. It's going to be because you're maintaining your composure, showing grace and love and mercy, a beautiful countenance, kindness. That's the kind of thing that the Lord uses. I hope it's been profitable. I hope it's been helpful, not just to the young ladies, but to all of us to understand what it means to maintain grace under fire.